If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This year marks the 200th anniversary of the beginning of the Greek Revolution, in which, against almost impossible odds, the Greek people secured their freedom from the mighty Ottoman Empire. In his new account of the revolution, the renowned historian Mark Mazower explains how the Greeks emerged triumphant and why these events would prove so crucial to the future of Europe. He spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Mark, we're speaking today about your new book, The Greek Revolution. Now, I know that some people call this event the War of Greek Independence, but why did you not go for that title for the book? Well, the War of Independence is how it's really always been known in Western Europe, uh, more or less from the achievement of independence. But it's interesting that it isn't how the Greeks usually refer to it. And actually, it has a quite odd ring in Greek. That alone wouldn't have warranted the change of title. But the Greeks call it the Greek Revolution. And I think that points us to some very important features of what happened. Uh, One of which was that when we think of wars in the modern era, we think of wars between states. But in fact, this was an uprising whose whole purpose was to create a state. So to call it the War of Independence is slightly to put the cart before the horse, really. Um, You missed the point that the whole purpose of what uh, the Greeks were trying to do was, in fact, to gain a state of their own, or more precisely, to get recognition. 
internationally for a state of their own. Call it a revolution, then immediately your mind turns to the French and the American revolutions, these uh, uh, great breaks uh, in political continuity. And I think the great Greek revolution is another such break in political continuity. It's the break from a world of multinational, polyglot, multi-religious empires to a world of nation states. And I think that one of the important features of what happened in the Eastern Mediterranean, whatever we want to call it, in the 1820s, was it was really the progenitor of this world of nation states that we live in. It was the first time that a people banded together and successfully defeated a great multinational empire and carved out on its territory a state for them. And that's what they had sought to do. So you you just alluded before to the the other revolutions that took place a few decades earlier that perhaps our listeners will be more familiar with. Did the revolutionaries in Greece draw any inspiration from France or America? Oh, they drew a great deal of inspiration, and they were very familiar uh, with what had happened uh, in those countries. Um, people in small countries tend to be much more familiar with what goes on in big countries than the other way around. And there were many Greek students uh, who had studied in French universities and and actually many important Greek intellectuals who were in Paris at that time. And the whole idea of what it was to be Greek was changing as a result of the Enlightenment and as a result of the transformation of French ideas. They were very, very struck by the example of Napoleon. Many people in in the Eastern Mediterranean had, of course, been directly impacted by the Napoleonic Wars. Some had fought for Napoleon. Many Philhellenes had fought for Napoleon and then saw the revolt in Greece as a continuation of that. And then a number of the more politically minded uh, intellectuals were very conscious of the example of the Americans as well and saw America as a model of the future by which they meant a, a future of, of popular sovereignty. And, and not only the United States of America and North America, but the contemporaneous wars of independence in South America from Spanish rule as well. So they were, from the beginning, very internationally attuned. So the revolution began 200 years ago this year in 1821. What do you see as the main causes or instigators of the revolution? That's a complicated question. Once upon a time, a generation or two of Marxist historians would have said it was the transformations in economic life in the Eastern Mediterranean and the rise of a mercantile bourgeoisie of merchants and ship owners. And that had certainly happened. Before them, uh, several generations of nationalist historians would have said It was the simple awakening of the desire in the breast of every Greek to be free and independent, except that it wasn't as simple as that, and it wasn't as simple as saying there are merchants and ship owners, and so you're going to have a new kind of consciousness. All of these things, I think, uh, were happening. That is to say, uh, the last 50 years under Ottoman rule had seen uh, the rise of a really important Greek merchant marine. That was to play a very important role, both in the planning and in the execution of the war. 
Uh, but there were an awful lot of Greeks who did not think about rising up against the Ottomans. And in general, that part of the Ottoman Empire was not a particularly turbulent part compared with some of the others. I think there was a, a, a chain of events, if I can be as banal as that, that there were a number of Greeks who were very disappointed that the great powers in 1815 would not do anything for them after Napoleon's defeat. And so they formed one of the many secret societies, conspiratorial societies, that uh, radicals formed across Europe. Only theirs was to fight for the freedom of the Greeks with no particular time frame in mind. And some people thought this was a matter of generations. It was a matter of educating the Greeks. But some of them were in a hurry. And they were very successful in proselytizing. And they had close ties to some powerful Greeks in the Russian court. And when they appointed one of these as their leader, uh, he wanted to accelerate the timetable and saw 1820, late 1820 or early 1821 as the essential time before they were discovered by the Sultan, because he was worried that the whole organization was going to be rolled up. And the Sultan was at that time preoccupied in the same territory with a quite different problem, which was the problem of Ali Pasha of Yanina, who was a great governor of Epirus, who had been ruling as a sort of autonomous potentate for many, many years, and who the Sultan had finally decided to crush. And the Greek conspirators thought this would provide a diversion. And so they prepared the ground, especially in the Peloponnese, and as they prepared the ground, they drew in a lot of rather reluctant local Greeks. Uh, but they started to come to the attention of the local Ottoman authorities. And it was at the point where the local Greeks realized they had been pushed into something that they could no longer avoid, that they decided to rise up. So I guess that's a very long-winded way of saying that I don't think the simple structural explanations suffice, that this chain of events found people pushed into doing things that they perhaps had not intended to do or hadn't intended to do at, um, at that time. And if we look around us in the world today and over the last 40 or 50 years, you can see other examples of such major upheavals that, that can be analysed in a similar way. There hadn't been a Greek state for a very long time prior to the Greek Revolution. So who did the revolutionaries think were the Greeks and where did they think Greece was? Well, there had never been a Greek state in the modern sense. I mean, perhaps yeah, yeah. if you want to go back to Alexander, but, but in the modern sense, there had never been a Greek state. So it's a very good question. One part of their idea, they drawn from the Europeans who, as you know, have become obsessed with the Greeks in the 18th century and much enlightenment thought had revolved around the ancient Greeks. So there was a huge kind of Greek discussion in Europe, an endless discussion of, of the wisdom of the Greeks and the beauty of the Greeks, there wasn't a lot of discussion of where were the Greeks uh, or what were the bounds of a Greece because people weren't thinking in those terms. But there was in a broad sense of an ancient Greek world that was uh, around the famous city-states and perhaps extended to the other side of the Aegean. So that was one image. But there was another image that was much less derived from Europe and much more derived from their own orthodoxy. And that was the idea that to be Greek, 
really was to be an Orthodox Christian who was faithful to the patriarch in Constantinople. Or to put it another way, to be Greek was to inhabit the lands of the old Byzantine Empire, or many of the lands of the old Byzantine Empire. And if you thought like that, then your conception of Greece could extend north through the Balkans right up to the Danube, and in fact beyond the Danube to the very borders of Russia. And what is so fascinating is that when the revolt breaks out and this conspiratorial organization, the Friendly Society, mounts its expedition, it starts off in present-day Romania, crossing from Russia into the Danubian principalities, and so it starts the war for Greek independence in a territory that was never part of ancient Greece, nobody thought was part of ancient Greece, had been part of the Byzantine world. And so many Greeks have in their mind a kind of recovery of the Byzantine Empire, uh, toppling the Sultan, but just replacing the Sultan with a ruler who would be faithful to Christ and to the Virgin Mary. They called it Toromeiko, doing the Roman thing, making Rome again. And how, how difficult had life been for Greek people, however we define that, under the Ottoman rule? Were the Ottomans particularly brutal overlords? Well, the Ottomans were not cuddly, and they ruled as most people ruled in, in the early modern period with a great deal of force. But like other early modern rulers, they knew that human beings were a precious resource, and too much brutality led people to flee. And that wasn't good for you economically or politically. There were parts of what would become Greece where large numbers of people were fleeing, and this was particularly true in the Peloponnese, where for the 50 years before the uprising, conditions had become very, very tough. And there had been a good deal of emigration. And Greeks had settled in Minorca and Mallorca. And they'd actually settled much further afield. There had been Greek colonists in Florida in the middle of the 18th century, some of the first European colonists. And many had gone to Russia, the Russian lands. So there was a good deal of emigration from some parts. At the same time, there were many other parts of what would become Greece, where people were very settled, uh, made do with very little, uh, and for one reason or other, um, did not emigrate. Some converted, small number converted to Islam. But in some parts of the Ottoman provinces, there was a surprising degree of autonomy. In the Peloponnese, there were these very wealthy Greek families. When Byron goes to stay, goes to visit Greece, he stays with one of the most powerful of these Greek families, and he's surprised to see them maintaining household, lavish households, apparently autonomously of the Muslim overlords. And there were a number of other powerful Greek military chieftains north of the Gulf of Corinth who worked for Ali Pasha, who in their domains were entrusted with uh, uh, rule of law and order. So it was a complicated picture, and it wasn't simply a picture of total repression. If I was to sum it up, I would say it was a way of life. It was a way of life uh, for the Greeks as well as for the Turks. They were clearly second-class citizens, but it was the way of life that they knew, and that in fact that many of their religious leaders told them was how God had ordained things. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. <laughs> 
And I think it's hard for us to put ourselves in the minds of people in the early 19th century, many of whom genuinely believed this. They genuinely believed that some spirit of the ancient Greeks had come back to life. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So the Ottoman Empire is this vast, territory with presumably lots of resources, lots of manpower. How are the Greeks able to stand up to them? Why couldn't the Ottoman rulers just crush this revolution? I think that's maybe the central mystery of the whole thing. I think almost everybody expected this revolt to be crushed like so many other revolts have been crushed beforehand. And when you look at the numbers, it should have been. I'm going to be honest and tell you that actually we don't have a definitive answer to this question right now for a simple reason, which is that our knowledge of the Ottoman side of the Greek revolution lags far behind our knowledge of the Greek side. It's only in the last 10 to 20 years, I would even say only in the last five years, that we've really seen the first serious work done by Ottomanists on this period and this topic. And actually, it was only in the course of this year that we had the first serious published collection of Ottoman documents. So we know very little about Ottoman grand strategy. We know relatively little about the Ottoman military machine. We know much less than we should about the fiscal crisis of the Ottoman state, except that there was a serious fiscal crisis. We know very little about what John Brewer once called the sinews of war. What we can see is the outcome. What we know is that the Ottoman state had difficulty in projecting its power into this province of its empire. And it was not that the Greeks prevailed because although they conquered much of the Peloponnese and some other territories as well, most of the really important fortresses that dotted the coast of the Peloponnese were never conquered by 
the Greeks. They remained in Ottoman hands. But the Greeks had won in the sense that they had produced a stalemate. They had not been defeated. They were defeated in other parts of the empire, and there were serious repression that crushed any uprising in the north and the east. But in the heartlands of the revolution, they were never really defeated. And that changed the equation for much of Europe after a year or so, when it was obvious that the Ottomans really lacked the capacity to defeat them. Having said that, the Sultan himself understood this, and so halfway through the fighting, he calls in his most powerful ally, a man he's very reluctant to make more powerful, who's the Viceroy of Egypt, Mehmet Ali, the Pasha of Egypt, who is building up the first modern army in the Middle East. And when the Egyptian army intervenes, it does actually look as though the Greeks will be defeated. And my own view is that if the war of the fighting had continued for another year, probably the Greeks would have been more or less defeated. And so ultimately, it's the prospect of the Greeks who've held on for so long being defeated by an Egyptian army that prompts Europe to intervene. So yeah, this is, this is an important part of the story, isn't it? How do the major European powers respond to the Greek Revolution then? Well, I think one of the great interests of the Greek Revolution is what it tells us about European history at this time. Uh, one could look at this as a diplomatic question. So from the diplomatic point of view, uh, it is the Greek Revolution that sees uh, a sea change in European diplomacy. 1815, the victors against Napoleon are united by one desire, and that is to crush any future revolutionary activity in Europe. And so when the Greeks uh, revolt in 1821, they have no explicit support from any of the European powers. It was a terrible time to have started to revolt. By 1826-27, that consensus has broken down, and the British and George Canning in particular, the Foreign Secretary and briefly Prime Minister, had used the Greek revolt to effect what was a far more important goal for him, to smash the Holy Alliance by bringing the Russians onto the side of the British and uniting them in the cause of Greece, and then bringing the French in as well. And by doing so, he smashed this um, coalition of conservative powers. So if you look at it from the diplomatic history point of view, uh, what you see is a, a reluctant acceptance of the need to intervene in Greece. I wouldn't go so far as to say that that means the great powers have embraced the cause of revolution in general, and in fact, there's a sort of generalized horror at what they've done in 1828 and 29. But they have um, brought to an end this first period of conservative restoration. But I think that it would be a mistake only to look at this from the diplomatic point of view, because you have to ask what caused this change? What caused the change in the behavior and the calculation of the statesman? And I think what caused the change was public opinion. And so that I think, is where things start to get interesting for the historian, because you can see that along with abolition, the cause of the Greeks was really the first great cause to galvanize public opinion as 
the political force that we know it is today. Today, we live with public opinion. We take it for granted. But in the 18th century, there, there was no public opinion in the modern sense. Public opinion is really uh, a, a creation of the post-Napoleonic restoration uh, and largely in opposition to the post-Napoleonic restoration. And Greece is the cause that galvanizes everybody from Heine and Byron to Pushkin and Delacroix and beyond them to whole swathes of society, brings in women as major political actors for the first time. Uh, and so explaining the shift in diplomacy is the rise of the power of public opinion. The cult of celebrity, the cult of the great celebrity creator like Byron, for instance, uh, and what impact this has on the sensibility of hundreds of thousands of people. How much did this public opinion draw on the ancient Greek world and the popularity of classical Greece? I think it was the fundamental presupposition for it. Uh, public opinion was never galvanised by the cause of the Colombians. It was never galvanised by the cause of the Serbs. People remained largely impervious to the plight of the Serbs. They were, their, their sensibilities were touched by the idea that the ancient Greeks had risen again and were fighting for freedom. And I think it's hard for us to put ourselves in the minds of people in the early 19th century, many of whom genuinely believed this. They genuinely believed that some spirit of the ancient Greeks had come back to life. I think Shelley believed this. We have um, stories of French Philhellenes who have been at home in France when they read in the newspaper this proclamation of the Spartans that's been carefully crafted by some Greek revolutionaries in the early days of the revolution and tells Europe that the Spartans have risen again and need their help. And so these French Philhellenes read this and they take the boat from Marseille and they land in the small Ottoman port of Kalamata in the south of the Peloponnese. And the first thing they do when they get off the boat is they ask somebody, where is the Spartan assembly? And the guys scratch their head and look at them like they're completely bonkers. There is no Spartan assembly. Uh, there is no ancient Sparta. There are several thousand pretty tough-looking Marniot brigands in the cafes of Kalamata and some of their first victims will be the Philhellenes. So the Europe is imagining this ancient Greece coming back to life, and that's driving them uh, into action. And so you said earlier that the Greeks were actually potentially close to defeat when the Egyptian army was on the scene. So what did the European powers do that turned the tide? So in the spring of early spring of 1825, uh, the Egyptian army lands in the Peloponnese, and in the next year and a half, it operates very, very successfully, a kind of scorched earth policy um, to bring the Greeks to heel. And dozens, perhaps hundreds of Greek villages announce that they're submitting to the Sultan. And the Greek revolutionaries are very worried. And after about a year, they help the Ottoman army and they defeat the Greeks who are holding out in the town of Messalonghi. It's the famous siege of Messalonghi, which ends in tragedy when the uh, the town's inhabitants decide their only hope is to make a sortie and try and charge cut through the enemy lines. And many of them are killed and many, many more are sold into slavery. And actually, it's that event and the news of the enslavement of thousands of Greeks 
that really sends a shot through Europe and, and touches some of the statesmen who decide that this cannot be allowed to continue. And the British and the Russians, joined by the French, decide to send a joint naval force to the Eastern Mediterranean. They want to do what great powers tend to do in these situations, which is to intervene at low cost. Uh, they don't want to intervene militarily. They don't really want any fighting. They hope that the demonstration of force will somehow miraculously bring the Greeks and the Turks together. Unfortunately for them, the, the, the Greeks are very happy about this, of course, because they're about to be defeated. But the Sultan is outraged and he rejects all efforts at mediation, uh, at really, at, at least until it's too late. And so there is a, a large European fleet moored off the port of Navarino. Uh, increasingly, now events move into the hands of the commanders of that fleet on the ground. Communications just take too long. And the commanders of that fleet are concerned that the Egyptian army is continuing its operations in the Peloponnese and that they're redundant. And they're also concerned by a very practical consideration which is that they can't spend the winter off the coast of the Peloponnese. Their ships will be blown everywhere and there will be no effective blockade. So they decide to sail their, the combined fleet into the Bay of Navarino, which is a very beautiful, very large natural harbour, and to moor there in a show of force. And the Ottoman navy is already lined up inside the bay. So although the... Allied fleet does not go in uh, with the intention of fighting. They go in prepared to fight. And in fact, it seems quite likely that the Ottoman admiral had been given orders to fight the Allied fleet because the strategic advantage lay with them. And so a battle breaks out. This is the Battle of Navarino. It's the last great battle of the Age of Sail. And it ends after five or six hours of intense close quarters fighting with a total defeat for the Ottoman navy. And the Ottoman navy has henceforth ceased to exist as a factor. And that means really that the Greeks will not be pushed out from the Peloponnese. The Greeks have in that sense prevailed thanks to this European intervention, which had been totally unforeseen by anybody. When the news comes back to England, the government is not at all sure that it's what they wanted. And so they greet it with uh, 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 some consternation. But the Greeks are overjoyed, and that is effectively the end of the fighting. And then there is a period of diplomatic activity, which will result four or five years later in the emergence of uh, internationally recognised Greece. And that Greece that emerges, how close is that to the Greece that we know of today? in terms of its boundaries? Well, in terms of its boundaries, it's not close at all because it's basically the Peloponnese, the Cyclades, uh, but not Crete, uh, not Rhodes, not the Dodecanese, some territory on the other side of the Gulf of Corinth, including Delphi, where people would go today, but it doesn't include Yanina or Thessaloniki or any of the north of Greece that people visit today. All those territories are acquired by the Greeks in the course of the next 100 to 140 years. So the story of the Greek state uh, between 1830 and, 18, and 1950 is the story of the gradual territorial expansion northwards and, and eastwards across the Aegean. 
What did these events mean for the Ottoman Empire? Because by the early 20th century, it's known as the sick man of Europe. Is this where the sickness begins? I think it is. I, I think there were signs already in the 18th century that the Ottoman Empire was unable to compete in the way that it had done earlier with the great powers of Europe. And that was for a combination of military and fiscal reasons. The state was simply not able to raise the resources or create the army that could compete. It's the Greek Revolution that makes this manifest for the very first time. And actually, one of the most important consequences of of the, the Greek Revolution is that it shocks the Ottoman state into reform. And so the sultans begin the process that that in fact they had been trying for many years before to reform the Ottoman military. They massacre the Janissary Corps in 1826, actually while the fighting is still going on. They're impressed by the achievements of the Egyptian army and they realize that it's only by Europeanizing their army uh, that they stand a chance. So that's a very important consequence. Another very important consequence is that they have to reform the tax system uh, in order to raise the revenues. And a third is that they introduce a series of administrative and governmental reforms that give much greater powers and recognize uh, the minorities of the empire, the so-called Tanzimat reforms in the 1830s. So I would say that the impact of the Greek revolution is as great for the empire as it is for the Greeks. Of course, we should bear in mind that after the formation of Greece, there are more Greeks living in the Ottoman Empire still than there are in this new tiny little kingdom of Greece. And that won't change for many, many years. Now, right at the start of the interview, you talked about how this was a really pivotal moment for modern Europe as well as just for Greece. I mean, how much did the uh, later emergence of countries such as Germany and Italy derive from what the Greek experience was? Well, there were many nationalist revolutionaries who were inspired. There were some who'd fought for the Greeks, uh, Germans, uh, Piedmontese uh, and other Italians, some Poles, some Finns. So Greece was this kind of lodestar. And Greece was a victory. It was the most unexpected victory of a tiny nation. So in that sense, it gave a great deal of hope. And Philhellenism um, became a kind of model for the Hungarian, Polish, and Italian revolutionaries in 1848 and afterwards. And Greece itself became a kind of refuge for them when their rebellions were crushed. The trouble was that the great powers did not regard what had happened as a model for future emulation. And so in the 1830s, although Belgium becomes independent, in general, the great powers are hostile to the national causes of other peoples, and the Italians and the Poles and the Hungarians all have to wait. And the Russians intervene very decisively against both the Hungarians and the Poles. So it's not that Greece becomes the model because the international environment is quite different, but it's an inspiration. And I would say also, it, although it's forgotten by the 1940s or the 1950s, it is a kind of model in a more general sense for 19th century liberals. And we can trace the impact on, of the Greek cause on a number of very important 19th century liberals. Gladstone would be a case in point. Gladstone has been at school 
had been a terrific Phil Helling. And there were other, uh, other such figures who were all marked by this moment and remembered it. Uh, and so there is a kind of subterranean intellectual history of the legacy of the Greek Revolution as well. And so we're now in the bicentenary year of the Greek Revolution. How are these events remembered by Greek people and in Greece today? That's an interesting question. The 150th anniversary took place in 1971 in the middle of the colonel's junta. Greece was under a dictatorship. And the junta embraced the anniversary. They saw themselves as a new revolution, continuing the work of the old one. And the result of that was that for many years afterwards, many Greeks had a kind of slightly queasy feeling about too much enthusiasm for this kind of anniversary. And so I think it was a bit of a dilemma for the Greek state how to approach this. And the decision was, was taken fairly late in the day that there ought to be some kinds of commemorations. I think what struck me is how serious and relatively restrained the celebrations have been. That's partly, of course, because COVID has made it impossible to have many big processions or marches or parties. There have been some. But what there have been are more than the usual quantity of really excellent exhibitions. There's a, there's a really important exhibition that's been on at the Benaki Museum that's really a guide to modern Greece of exceptional quality. Uh, there have been a number of very important art exhibitions. There have been any number of conferences, of course. So I think there's going to be a legacy down the road in terms of new work. It's been a more serious, uh, more reflective affair than one might have imagined, much less of the sort of rah-rah uh, jingoism than there was 50 years ago. That was Mark Mazawa. The Greek Revolution, 1821, and the making of modern Europe is out now, published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.